he was just like, right, I'll sort of take off and stuff. And it was dual, dual control. And then he just, like, slid his seat back, like you do in a car. Slid his seat back. He was like, yeah, your turn. And just took his took his hands, took everything off everything, and was like, "Yep, you go." I was like, "Fuck!" <laughs> but it was fun. It was good fun. I enjoyed it. See, you could you could book another hour lesson, and then when it yeah. comes to it, you can just sort of turn it towards the Isle of Man and just refuse to give control of the plane back. <laughs> I'm going to see Joe. <laughs> We're going to the Isle of Man. I assume there's at least one airfield on the entire bloody island, so we'll but... find that. But Joe's not there yet. I'm going to see Joe. <laughs> Be ringing me from the cockpit of your plane going, when's the next ferry? When is yeah. it? Come on, get on. Get on that yeah. ferry. You're going to have to run. And you'll be like, I haven't even moved yet, Ollie. I'm like, fucking hurry up. I'm in, I'm in work. <laughs> I shall camp here <laughs> until you arrive. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This story takes place on a small street in London. Specific? It, It will get more specific, though not at first, because back when the Romans invaded Britain in 43 AD, one of the first things that they did was to establish a secure crossing point on the River Thames. Today, although it's moved slightly over the years, this crossing point has evolved into London Bridge. Although initially not too happy about having the invaders building, you know, infrastructure on their river, the indigenous Brits soon realised that the two garrisons of soldiers stationed at either end of the bridge, they'd be looking for a way to spend their hard-earned pay at the end of a long shift. And it wasn't like they could, you know, nip back across the uh, channel to spend the money there. Mm. So they were going to have to spend the money in Britain. Enterprising groups of the locals moved in next door to the garrisons, offering a range of goods and services to the soldiers in exchange for cold, hard cash. And it was these ramshackle communities which continued to expand until by 47 AD they were established enough to be referenced on Roman maps as Londinium. And she is born. She is born from squaddies, essentially. Yeah. The original Roman version of the city was relatively small, only around half a square mile. However, the settlement was already beginning to expand, and, just to the northwest of the city walls, a group of enterprising women set up shop to attend to some of the soldiers' more carnal urges. Adult needs. Adult needs, yes. They created a short street, which, even today, is only just over 100 metres long. It was understood that if a man went for a walk down this street, then he could offer any woman he saw money in exchange for sex. No, no no comments there. No, I was just going to say, I'm just trying to work out where the street is. Does the street still exist? Oh, this street still exists. Have I been on the street? We'll find out. (laughs) Eventually, after a brief hiatus when Boudicca burned the entirety of Londinium to the ground... Yeah. The little street of prostitution was subsumed into the rapidly expanding metropolis. Though no longer on the periphery of the city, the profession of the workers did not change, to the point that by the time of the Norman Conquest, local Londoners had given the street the name Pillycock Lane. Is it still called that? Well, no. I was going to say, I don't recognise that name, and that, that is a name that I would definitely know. I know, obviously, Watling Street is a very old road in London but that's as far as I know yes well 
pillycock at the time was a slang word for penis. I, I, and we should absolutely bring that back. Yes. It, so a, a man would would uh, get out his pillycock <laughs> in order. Oh, to is that have where relations. cock comes? From? I suppose that's cockfighting, isn't it? Like a male. Mm, but it's uh, uh, the original for a slang for penis. It was a contraction of of pillycock. Mm. Mm. Now, by the time Richard II was on the throne in 1393... OK, we've jumped. Yeah. The monarchy, they were a bit strapped for cash. This was in part due to ongoing wars with France and Scotland that had drained the coffers, but it was mainly due to Richard's extravagant lifestyle because he loved a party and he loved the finer things in life, like clothes and and just, you know, feasts. I mean, I can get on board with that. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Richard was like, well... I, I need to keep doing this. And he needed to find novel ways to raise cash. One of the ways he managed this was to licence and tax prostitution within the city of London. Okay, yeah, an established business. I, I suppose it's a good way to get some money in Into regularly. Yeah. Legalised prostitution had been taking place all over the city prior to 1310, not only on Pillicock Lane, but also in such beautiful locations as Grobecunt Lane in Southwark and many foggy back streets around the East End docks. Right, okay. But it was ended when prostitution was banned by the definitely not gay Edward II, who felt that men being able to have sex with women in a well-regulated and consensual manner was just not on. So was he jealous? Did he want want all the men to himself? Mm, Well, his super special friend at the time, Piers Gaveston, he Mm. agreed with the king that sex with girls was icky and should be discouraged wherever possible. Fine. Yeah, some people are very um, anti-not-what-they-are, aren't they? Mm. Mm. Well, it, there's there's a lot of evidence to say that Edward II was... Um, he definitely enjoyed the company of men more than the company of women, and uh, whether this was linked to those sorts of you know repressed feelings that he had mm. or whether this was just a case of um, a moral crusade where he, he felt that he was in some way... Deviant. Um, History and he, books crack me up. Yeah. They're like they were really good friends. Oh, yeah. he was definitely having sex with peers. Yeah, but it, it could have been a reaction of he he kind of felt that he was doing something that God didn't like. So to square it, he had to, in other aspects, be overly moral. Like we can't have prostitution. Well, you do you do find that people uh, who have desires towards their own sex or. or I don't know, whatever, they fancy animals, I don't know, whatever, they they tend to hold the moral high ground a lot more so it mm. sort of diverts the attention away from them. Well, that they couldn't possibly do it because they're upstanding citizens of the they're community. So, they're so against it. They've, and they've then the when rallies. it comes out, it, seems, it almost seems worse yeah. <laughs> because they've been so, like anti what they are in order to try and cover it up yeah mm, yeah just just accept it yeah but due to the ban and reintroduction of legalized prostitution at the whims of various kings in 1393 pillycock lane became the only place in london where prostitution was allowed so okay. this and this is a short yeah, yeah 100 meter or so street was the only place where uh, were legal prostitution could occur i mean Prostitution continued to occur all over the city, but of course, in terms of you know it being registered 
if if you wanted to register your official job title as prostitute, you had to be plying your trade on Pillicock Lane at that point. Yeah. And paying tax because, you know, Richard, he needs his really nice clothes. Uh, yeah. I, status, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Over the centuries, prostitution would be made illegal and then legal again at the whims of the monarchy. Mm. But through it all, Pillicock Lane endured. By the 1600s, the name had, however, been shortened to the much snappier Cock Lane. Okay. I've seen it. I know where it is. Oh, good. I know where it is. I've walked past it. When I was doing um, barbering at the London School of Barbering, (laughs) Um, I walked past it and I was like, ha, that's really funny. I know exactly where it is. Well, due to the ad hoc manner of London's expansion, with no clear planning for what should go where, Cock Mm. Lane is about a minute's walk from the Old Bailey. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And only a few minutes away from St Paul's Cathedral. So the the epicentre of prostitution in London is... Uh, 200 yards from the Central Criminal Court. Yeah. And what, you're looking at maybe half a mile from the centre of, you know, one of the most iconic churches in the in the, in the the capital as well. Yeah, although I, I definitely prefer the old... Um, the old St Paul's. St Paul's, yeah, definitely. The more blocky, sort of imposing edifice. Yeah, right? it was a bit more... Um, it looked very much more like Westminster Abbey than this well, sort of massive boob. Yes, but why Why did they have to replace it? Can you remember? Yeah, Great Fire of London, burnt uh-huh. down. But do you know that Cock Lane is also central to the story of the Great Fire of London? So, I know, obviously, it's very central, so it's near... It's in the S- Smithfields, I think? Yeah, I want to say Smithfields. Smithfields yeah. yeah, yeah, which is where they used to hang people, which is where William Wallace was also killed. Oh. Little fact for you there. Within within spitting distance of Cock Lane. <laughs> but, no, Cock Lane is reported and accepted by many to be the point at which the Great Fire of London burned itself out in 1666. Ah. The spot was commemorated by a golden statue of a small naked boy. Because when you're looking to get your end away, that is exactly the kind of image you want to see. I mean, some people might. But the um, the golden boy is still there with an inscription underneath. So if you do go to one end of Cock Lane and you look above a pub, there is uh, this golden, in a sort of little alcove, there is this golden naked kid to commemorate the... the I've seen it. it. I know it. I can... Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I know exactly where you are. It is... And there's, um, there's like an inscription underneath it as well, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fine. I know exactly where you are. So you know oh, where this we is are. exciting. Yes. This tiny little lane was also the place where John Bunyan, preacher and author of the Pilgrim's Progress, From died. From Bedford. Well, that's where he died. He died on Cock Lane in 1688. Did he? Though I hasten to add that he was not reported to have been engaged with a prostitute at the time. He died of an illness in a friend's house, and his friend just so happened to live on Cock Lane. He wasn't going there for the entertainments and having, you know, some kind of aneurysm or heart attack based on the the levels of excitement. I mean, that would be ironic, wouldn't it? After he sort of he was in prison for writing, or no, he wrote The Pilgrim's Progress in Bedford Prison. Mm. And um, it was all very preachy, I think. Yes. We studied it at school because I, I went to school in Bedfordshire, so it was, a, uh, it was a ting that we all had to learn about him. Obviously, I haven't retained that information very well, but um, dying on Cock Lane... This is what I'm saying. If people are very much preachy about their beliefs and then they end up in a situation like dying in Cock Lane, then 
that needs to be covered up, doesn't it? You so, feel like that undercuts the message, even though, like I say, it was reported he had a fever. He'd been travelling to London. He'd developed a fever and he'd been taken to a friend's house and his friend was like, I just so happen to live in the red light district. I hope that's not On this, like, 100 metre street? Yeah, this tiny little street. Mm, yeah, convenient, that. Convenient. So he's, he's had a, quite the history as Cochrane, but mm. it was not until the Georgian kings were on the throne that Cochrane received its most famous claim to fame. Go on. William Kent had been having a difficult time of it. Poor old William. Okay. After starting out as a usurer... A what? A usurer. What's that? Basically, it's the historical equivalent of a loan shark. So it's somebody who will give out loans but will charge an exorbitant interest on those loans. Okay. He decided he needed to mend his ways when he met a beautiful woman from Wiltshire called Elizabeth Lines. Though he never did actually stop offering people loans with massive interest, he did try to focus on more respectable employment opportunities owning a pub, and later a post office. So he, okay, is this near Cock Lane? Because there's no. a post office... This was, this was in Wiltshire. Right, okay, fine. He wasn't from Wiltshire. He'd moved there because he wanted to be with Elizabeth Lyons, and he'd gone, well, I'm still going to have to, you know, give out the occasional loan because mm-hmm. it's an itch I need to scratch, but hey, I'm a publican now. That's yeah, much res- more respectable. respectable. Everyone loves a publican. Mm. The yeah. couple married in 1756. And William was excited when, shortly afterwards, Elizabeth announced that she was pregnant with their first child. Oh, that's good. To help Elizabeth around the house during the third trimester, William agreed that her sister Fanny could move in with them until the child was born. Seems reasonable. Yeah, you know, it's family helping family. Mm-hmm. Sadly, when the day came, there were unforeseen complications and Elizabeth died during childbirth. So sad, but so common. The baby boy that she'd given birth to didn't live much longer, and William was left to cope with a double whammy of devastating loss. But during these darkest days, he had the unwavering support of Elizabeth's younger sister. Right, go on. And at some point, he looked across that breakfast table, and he decided that the only thing that could give his life meaning again was Fanny Lines. (laughs) sorry grow up Oliver grow up (laughs) and luckily for William Fanny felt the same way Mm -hmm. and the two they they healed their grief through the starting of a relationship William hoped that they could get married but he was informed that because his previous wife had borne him a child however briefly he would not be allowed to marry again is that because he consummated the marriage? Uh, I, I don't know why, but basically he went to speak um, to the local church um, and they said, look, if she, if she, you hadn't got a pregnancy, you hadn't had a kid, we'd have annulled the marriage and it would have been fine. You could have married uh, the sister. But as is, no, that was your one shot and you blew it. Sorry, mate. If you're going to live mm. with her, you're going to live in sin. And William, he didn't want to live in sin. So he moved to London where he took up his old game of loan sharking, uh, just hoping to forget the whole thing. He was like, look, it was it was a nice, short, mainly sexual relationship that we had, Fanny, but I've got to, I've got to move on. I've got a fresh start. In the London. bright lights of London are calling me. Yeah. And, you know, were better to be a loan shark than in London. Mm. Lots of people to rip off. Yeah. And, you know, that was it for him. It's like, I'm out. Yeah. But Fanny, 
she wasn't for being cast aside. And she began writing him letters, long, heartfelt letters, saying, I don't care if I am considered to be living in sin. I'd rather live in sin with you than live a full, rich, God-fearing life without you, William. I need you in my life. She was in love. She was, she'd fallen Smitten. Hard. And to be fair, William, he felt he was doing the right thing by moving away and trying to cut all contact. But he, you know, he loved her too. And so eventually he relented and had Fanny move in with him mm. into his, his lodgings in London. In London. So he, he, he sent for her. Mm. Come on. Yeah, come We're on We're going to go to London. Uh, this naturally led to his landlord kicking them out uh, as he didn't want a couple living in sin under his roof. Because mm, yeah, tongues still would start to wag. 1756. Yeah. yeah, they couldn't. No, a bit, bit later than that. But yeah. Yeah. 1759, I think we're in now. Cool. He just, he didn't want, he didn't want the scandal of having this, this couple. No, of course. This clearly in love couple, you know, who were paying the rent, on, uh, paying the rent on time. Yeah. You know, and had gainful employment. He didn't want that couple in his house. Couldn't you just reasons. say you were married? I always think this when you like watch period dramas and stuff. Like, why don't they just say they're married? Like, where? Who is going to disagree with them? This is like pre-internet age. This is pre-telephone, well, photos, think, television. I think like, the problem with this first lodgings was he never intended to move Fanny into the first place. So uh, he probably okay. told the landlord that he had, you know, his wife had died in childbirth and his child uh, had died and he was going for fresh start. So when he brought another woman in, he could hardly go, well, this is my wife. She lives. <laughs> she, <laughs> she got better. I, yeah. I completely overreacted. Um, <laughs> it's when everyone, like, someone has a meltdown and then 10 minutes later they're fine. Yeah. I'm just like, yeah, fine. I just imagine the doctor running after him going, she's fine. It's like, it's all over. <laughs> listen, listen to me. Seriously, Mr. Kent, don't, don't do this. So funny. What they needed, they needed a landlord with less conservative views. Someone who'd be a bit, a bit more willing to just let things roll. Hmm. They found a man called Richard Parsons who just so happened to own a house on Cock Lane. Number 20, Cock Lane, in case you're wondering. It's a very small lane. Who it are is. all these people living here? Well, Richard's one of maybe... 10. 10, 15, <laughs> maybe. Um, as someone owning property on a street famed for prostitution, Richard was, naturally, a lay vicar at St. Sepulchre Without in Newgate. Okay. So he worked for the church, essentially. Mm-hmm, yeah. He was also, as a good God-fearing Christian, uh, apparently a bit of an alcoholic and a gambler who was often in need of extra income to support his long-suffering wife and daughter. So he was happy to overlook the nature of William and Fanny's relationship as long as they paid him money on time. Mm. That he could money then, talks. Uh, yeah, money fritter away. talks, yeah. Because he had a wage that should have been, you know, fine to support him and his family. But he had some issues. He had some issues he was dealing with, and the mm. extra rent from the room that they were letting out was... That was pretty much his beer money, you know? It, yeah. It, I don't think wife and child were seeing any of that. He was just sort of pocketing it. It's like, I'll just put that in the... Uh, there we go, and... Why did I get married and have a child? God damn it. I could have gambled everything. <laughs> Maybe I can gamble the wife and child. <laughs> I don't even like them anyway. Well, I mean... By the end of the story, you'll question whether he ever liked them. Oh, intriguing. Richard not only offered them a room, though, he also, almost immediately, took out a 13-guinea loan from William to be repaid at the rate of one guinea a month. 
And I'm assuming okay. that once he'd finished the repayments, it would have been slightly more than 13 guineas oh, that yeah. he'd taken from him. Probably closer to 20, if not yeah. 30 guineas, uh, when it was all repaid. Inflation. Well, this is, this is the interest rates, you know. I mean, mm. if you want the money quick, there's a, there is a cost that comes to that. Yeah. And that's how they get you. Well, even though there was this, you know, weird two-way financial sort of reliance thing going on that you probably don't want to enter into with a landlord, the arrangements seemed to be working well. And soon, Fanny became pregnant. In sin. William, understandably, was a bit more um, concerned about Fanny's welfare, having mm. known what happened to her, uh, her older sister. Yeah. And so whenever he was away on business... He asked that Richard's daughter Elizabeth sleep with Fanny in her bed while he was away. Okay. Make sure that if anything happened, you know, Someone's if there's any there, pains, yeah. there's someone there who's going to raise the alarm immediately. So he's like, look, Elizabeth Parsons, will you sleep with my wife? I will pay you so long as you are in bed with my wife whenever I'm not. Okay. <laughs> Where is this going? Is this platonic? Oh, no, no, no. There was, there was no impropriety there. She was literally just staying with um, Fanny to make sure that nothing went awry with the pregnancy. It was at this point, though, when they were sharing a bed, Elizabeth and Fanny, that the trouble began. Because the two women reported hearing scratching and banging sounds in the middle of the night that appeared to be coming from under the bed. <sighs> the men joked that it was not unusual to hear banging in the middle of the night on Cock Lane, but the joke fell flat as Fanny and Elizabeth appeared genuinely terrified and were convinced that they were being haunted by a ghost. Mm. No, it wasn't ooing, it was just going... Like that. Spooky. It's not spooky. If you're on Cock Lane, anything goes on Cock Lane. They, they kind of brushed it aside, but then a local pub owner and male called James Franzen said that he had actually seen a ghost while visiting Parsons. The reported haunting from that point was taken much more seriously. Okay. And William, he didn't want his heavily pregnant wife getting mixed up in, in a haunting. He didn't want Fanny anywhere near a ghost. So he decided probably best to move to different accommodation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did so in January of 1760. Okay. Sadly, though, by the 25th of January, Fanny had developed a fever. Oh, no. She was visited by a doctor and the local apothecary, who confirmed that it was smallpox. Get have marks of the pox. Mm. Fanny died on February the 2nd of the oh, smallpox. Oh, no. I thought most people recovered from that. Well, I mean... I thought you were just scarred. The problem is, because... All of her body's resources were going to grow in that child. She was immunocompromised, essentially. Um, yeah. Because the other thing about a baby is it's essentially a parasite living in you. So your body has to trick its immune system into not attacking the baby. It does freak me which out, Which causes not, immunocompromised sort of state. I'm not going to lie. It does really creep me out. Like, when I think about it, like, proper. Like a human growing inside a human. mm what the actual fudge? Well, the only way that you can rectify that is to become a scientist uh, and develop genetics to the point where humans start to lay eggs. I just don't like it. It just doesn't. It just doesn't feel right. I know it's it's the most natural thing in the world, but 
Oh, God, I sound very right-wing, don't I? It's, um... No, because just... I don't think you're saying it's abhorrent. You're just saying it's a bit icky. You're like, I realise it has to happen, and... Yeah, especially... I've seen these videos and stuff as well where they sort of... They've kind of got these models, and they've taken the the skin layer away so you can see exactly what happens at different periods of pregnancy. And you... Or, or that... you've kind of got the baby but then you've also got like the placenta that just looks vile like just bobbing around in this sort of fluid sack Mm. it just makes me feel makes me feel rotten and then and then after all of that this big human has to come out of a very 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 small area well not in fanny's case because she didn't give birth before she died so the child died as well fine it was reported that on her deathbed she repeated the name of her dead sister elizabeth elizabeth Hmm. with some reporting that as she neared death she was able to see her sister beckoning her to the other side come on fanny we need to have a conversation about what you've been doing with my husband (laughs) it's gonna be an awkward reunion yeah what about no, when he just, dies and comes up here? I could just imagine her standing there with her arms crossed. Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. Come on, then. <laughs> I've been waiting three years to give you an arse kicking. Yeah. It's, it's my husband. Time. Yeah. Although not married, William and Fanny had made each other the beneficiaries of their respective wills. Okay. And William's grief at losing a second wife-child combo in a space of three years was softened slightly by an inheritance of over £200, which allowed him to leave behind the life of a loan shark. Yeah, well, quite a hefty amount. William instead became a stockbroker. Uh, interesting. And, because apparently um, church rules in London were a bit more lax than they were in Wiltshire, he was able to remarry within the year. Uh, OK. So whereas, you know, in, in the rural communities of Wiltshire, they're like, no, you can't, you can never marry again, sir. How... Sacred to the memory of your wife, sir. <laughs> in London, they went, well, if she's not here, you may as well have a different one. Go on. <laughs> There's plenty to pick from around here. Just go down Cook Lane, innit? Well, I wouldn't go down there to pick a wife. I don't know. It could be a pretty woman scenario. Oh, you reckon he's going to Richard Gear someone? Yeah. For, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I, I don't know anything about um, William's... I'm going to call it a third wife, because I think Fanny was in all but name. Yeah, yeah. But... Suffice to say, there's there's no mention of her dying in childbirth, so third time's the charm. I hope he did eventually get a kid, you know. Do we not know that? We don't know that, no. Oh. Because, you know, William, it was a weird thing that, you know, his his nearly wife experienced a ghost shortly before dying, but he put it out of his mind, and he was probably of the mind that he'd never go to Cock Lane again. Hmm. If Richard Parsons had actually bothered to finish paying off his debt. <sighs> okay. Because although he didn't mm. owe Richard any more money, because he'd stopped living there, Richard mm. damn sure owed him money. Mm. Uh, and he defaulted while still owing three guineas. So he paid go up? off most of it, that's the thing. Yeah. Even with the interest, he paid off most of it, and then probably just... It still, gone, doesn't, still oh. doesn't matter, does it? They don't care. Well, I think Richard had gambled on the idea of, well, I'm finding it really hard to keep handing this money over. Hmm. 
um, I'm sure he's got. He just got two hundred quid, and he's a stockbroker now. He's probably making money hand over fist. He's going to ignore that last three if I just don't pay it. People don't get rich for no reason. No, they don't. Um, and there's there's no Judge uh, Judy or Judge Rinder. Oh yeah, to, take two. Yeah. Well, William, you know, he's he's the kind of guy who's his ledgers are always in order, and he noticed immediately. He's like, "Where's Parsons' payment?" Mm. And as soon as it was confirmed that he defaulted. William instructed his solicitor uh, to sue his former landlord for the outstanding amount. Okay. Now, you're not getting away with this. I don't care who you are. Hmm. I don't care that we shared dinner together on many a night, listening to the sounds of lovemaking on Cock Lane. <laughs> and ghosts. Yeah, a debt's a debt. Strangely, it was at this moment when Richard Parsons was finally forced by a judge to repay the money in full that the hauntings in Cock Lane recommenced. So the ghost had gone dormant since Fanny had left, but now she's back with a vengeance. Was the ghost like a banker or something? That's banker. (laughs) B-A-N-K-E-R. Well, we we don't know much about the ghost yet. Yet. A new lodger called Catherine Friend had moved in to the, a nice name. to the old room that William had, had been renting out. And mm. she reported hearing banging and scratching each and every night. It got to the point that she literally couldn't sleep and abandoned the house, telling the Parsons that they needed to do something about the noises or they would never find another lodger. Which, as you can imagine, was very bad news for Parsons because he suddenly had this debt that he had to pay off immediately rather than mm. by instalments. He's like, shit... Okay, so remind me, I don't, the layout of the house, so they're above something. So the, the house layout is three, I mean, I say house, it's three single rooms, large open rooms, on top of each other. So there's only three rooms in the house. There's the okay. ground floor that's like the kitchen slash where everyone lives. Yeah. Then there's one bedroom on the second floor. Yeah. And then there's a second bedroom at the top. And it's all one single dwelling, so they're not above a shop or no, they're not no, no. above... No, 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 it's just right. this dwelling. Okay. 20 Got Cock you. Lane, just these three rooms going up. Yeah. Concerned about losing the money, like I say, Richard Parsons, he sprang into action and contacted an assistant preacher called John Moore. Okay. The two men decided to do a little bit of ghost hunting. Yeah. And they managed, over time, to narrow the source of the sounds down to Elizabeth Parsons' bed. Okay. That's his daughter's bed. Right. They had the wood panelling near the bed ripped out, just in case someone was hiding behind it. Was she asleep on the bed at the point? What, that they narrowed it down? Yeah. Yeah, she was lying in the bed and they were like, the sounds are coming from this bed. Okay. Elizabeth, what's going on? Elizabeth went, I don't know, nothing. Uh, right, well, somebody's in here. We need to rip off the wood panelling because someone, for a sense of mischief, is just crawling behind the panelling in, in our bedroom, in our small, cramped dwelling, just Some, to scratch at things. Something is happening. I mean, it could be rats, I guess, maybe he was looking for that. Uh, yeah, it could be. But behind the wood panelling, they found nothing. Okay. And John Moore, that was enough for him. He was an independent witness who was happy to state categorically that there was a ghost haunting the house in Cock Lane. He was a believer now. Yeah. So, Richard and John, what what can they do? <laughs> you can say Richard and Judy. Richard and Judy. Well, they thought, brilliant, 
we're both kind of lower lower rungs of the Anglican Church, but do you know what we get to do now? We get to perform an exorcism. Hell yeah. Exciting. That's yeah, that's that's gonna be a Friday night, isn't it? Yeah. Go and do an exorcism. But first they needed to find out who the ghost was and what it wanted. As the ghost didn't ever materialise, so you never got to see it, and it was only able to make banging or scratching sounds, meaningful communication initially proved difficult. Yeah. Eventually, though, a system was worked out whereby the ghost would knock once for yes and twice for no. Yeah. So it was was that simple. Uh, So essentially, as long as they can ask the right question, they can get all the information they need. Yeah. Parsons decided he best lead the question in. After all, it's his house that the ghost's in. So as the host, he should probably, you know initiate the conversation and he was amazingly able to figure out simply from yes or no questions in a relatively short space of time that the ghost was none other than his former lodger fanny lines <sighs> i mean what are the chances well, she died in the ha- that house hasn't yeah. she yeah yeah the previous ghost who had been haunting fanny was indeed fanny's sister elizabeth who'd been trying to warn fanny of her impending death to no avail and Fanny had now taken over that role so they'd both died in that house well, no, 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 they, they hadn't. hadn't no, okay, fine having identified the ghost, Richard then needed to figure out what she wanted because it's unfinished business, isn't it? Mm, yeah knowing that she died a month after leaving Cock Lane and that ghosts, you know, tend to hang around the place where something significant or traumatic happened yeah Richard went out on a limb and asked, Fanny, were you poisoned? And Fanny reportedly replied with just the single knock. Yes. I mean, what a guess. That is very good. I'm sorry to just cut you off. Some idiots are just... Can, can you hear them? Yeah, yeah. an engine. So, yeah, John Moore especially, he was amazed at how perceptive Parsons was in his questioning and how quickly he established the full tale of Fanny Lines. Because it turned out that Fanny had not died of smallpox as had been previously reported, but she had been poisoned by William Kent using arsenic. Surely that's in his interest to say something bad about the person that he owes money to. Well... No, no, no. You see, I, I can see how it looks, but there's there's a good motive for this arsenic poisoning because Kent had poisoned her in order to get hold of her inheritance. He had similarly poisoned his wife Elizabeth for the same reason because apparently his plan was to slowly work his way through all of the line's siblings, potentially including the males, they never established that, okay. until he had managed to hoover up all of the inheritance. So... According to the story that the ghost told, you know, William was seducing, I think there were five line siblings, one by one, uh, getting them to change their wills in his favour and then killing them off so that he could eventually have the entire family fortune. So he's getting the fortune by instalments. This is what he actually was doing or what they think he was doing? This is what the ghost told Richard Parsons and John Moore during that first sort of uh, interaction. Mm-hmm. Parsons confided in Moore that he'd always had suspicions about Kent using the fact that he 
actually pursued the debt that Parsons owed him as proof of his inhuman greed. You would say that, though, wouldn't you? You'd like No one likes owing anyone money. And he also said, you know, before they buried Fanny... Well, they didn't bury her. Before they put Fanny in the vault, the coffin lid was screwed shut. And Richard tried to say, this is clear proof that he was trying to cover up the fact that there were no smallpox scars on that body. Why else would you secure the lid of a coffin if it wasn't to cover up your murderous behaviour? I mean, there are many, many reasons, I would say. Um, flooding is a thing in vaults. You yep. see it quite quite often. If you put something in the ground, it floods. You don't want a dead body rising to the ground, do you? Like, no one wants to see that. I'm pretty sure that was in an episode of Jonathan Creek. Where oh, I a love Jonathan Creek. And the body floated forwards. And it looked as though it had tried to crawl out of the the room. And it was like, but it had been dead. And it had been... De- How did that happen? And Jonathan worked it out. He is very good, isn't he? He's very perceptive. Mm. He would have been useful in this situation. Yeah, he would have. But the two men, I mean, they've heard this story from the ghost, but they knew that they couldn't just couldn't just take this. This was hearsay. I mean, it was mm. ghostly hearsay. It's even worse. So they needed a bit more advice, and they asked a Methodist minister called Thomas Broughton, what, what do we do? How do we proceed? <laughs> they were told, you know, keep it quiet. We'll do some investigations. But unfortunately, even though they, they all tried to keep this very, very quiet, someone, <clears throat> Parsons, leaked the potential haunting to the press. The story was published by a paper called The Public Ledger, and William Kent suddenly found himself under suspicion as a potential murderer. This this has gone from zero to a hundred in no time at all. Well, you know, if you're... And I'm guessing that the, you know, the public ledger was the equivalent of the Daily Star today. Hmm. And they were like, oh, we get to splash a headline that has sex, it has death, it has money... You know, it has a haunting, a ghost from beyond beyond the grave is saying that she was murdered by her, you know, lover who she was living in sin with on Cock Lane for an inheritance. It's great, it doesn't isn't it? look good. No, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look and good. And then mob, mob rule takes over, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, Kent, he naturally called bullshit. Hmm. Um, and he wrote to the paper to, you know. This is slander. Yeah, basically. Uh, this is. But they probably said, well, the person who slandered you is a ghost, so why don't you take it up with the ghost? <laughs> so It's like in newspaper reports when they're like, a close source said, and you're like, who? Like, you've just made it up, haven't you? Like, no one said anything. Well, a close ghost source has said. He, he actually took them up on the advice that he go and speak to the ghost directly because he went to visit John Moore to protest his innocence, and John suggested that Kent... Why don't you come to the next seance that we're holding uh, and you can have it out with your dead mistress yourself? And this we'll is be early there. for seances, isn't it? I, you always think seances are a Victorian ting. Oh, I, the Georgians, you know, they, they weren't as obsessed with the Victorians ah, in death, but they definitely right. still loved it. Yeah, you're right. The Hellfire Club and all that shit, yeah. And this was a, this was a great distraction, you know. I mean, we're, we're in what? We're... A, the start we're in still in january hmm. you know it's cold it's wet it's Nothing a long to do. way till the summer season yeah. so and it's also you know it's it's dark and it's dingy and most things are lit by candles it's the perfect time of the year for a haunting yeah people are really going to go with it this fog's rolling in all the time it's great so yeah he said 
you come to the next seance, you have it out. And he did turn up on January the 12th, 1762, to the house in Cock Lane to have a chat with his dearly departed Fanny and ask, what are you doing? No, Fanny, no. As it had been established that the ghost was in some way linked to Elizabeth Parsons, it was agreed that in the interest of scientific inquiry, so that everyone could agree that it was done above board, that the group of interested spectators, including William Kent, would strip the girl naked and place her in the bed, having searched the bed, in the centre of the room to ensure no funny business. So it's, it's nothing weird, it's just a group of adult men undressing a child, uh, inspecting her thoroughly, and then placing her in a sterilised bed. That is traumatic. But it's for science, so it's okay. <laughs> it's not okay. Once they completed this, they tried to contact Fanny Lines. However, they were having trouble getting a connection, and after a few minutes, with no banging or scratching... Mary Fraser, one of the spectators who just so happened to be related to the Parsons, uh, she began running around the room, shouting loudly at Fanny to reveal herself. So she she wasn't a very patient woman, it seems. No. Come on, Fanny! Come on, Fanny! Come on, Fanny! Richard Parsons said that the ghost didn't like loud noise, and so he ushered everyone into the hallway to give him a chance to try and contact the ghost one-on-one. You know, I just need... I've I've spoken to her before. Give me a few minutes. I'll tell her it's okay. This clearly destroyed any kind of scientific conditions that they'd, you know, created. Yeah, they worked so hard. Yeah, so it was, well, we've done all of this, you know, pomp and circumstances. You've inspected every inch of my uh, young daughter's body. But now we're going to make all that null and void because you're all going to go out and I'm going to be left on, on my own with her. Yeah. About ten minutes later... Richard opened the door to let the others know that Fanny had made contact and that they could now talk to her as long as they were quiet about it. You know, come on. No shouting. Ghosts have feelings too, and it's very Mm. stressful. Last time it was just me and John, now there's there's 20 of you. Yeah. He's got performance anxiety. (laughs) I get that in urinals sometimes. Fanny confirmed via Knox that she was not William Kent's official wife, that she had died by poison and... They asked this question a bit cryptically, but she also confirmed that no one other than William had administered the poison. So she's she's responding through the knocking. Yeah, so... Yes, no questions. Th- That's very leading, isn't it? You well, could just say anything. Well, these were the questions they said. Is it true that you were not William Kent's wife? Yeah. Sorry. I think they've gone. <sighs> Hooligans. So yes, they, they asked, is it true that you were not William Kent's wife? And they went, is it true that you were poisoned? Is it true that nobody but William Kent poisoned you? Which, I, I, I mean, to me, it sounds like, you know, trying to establish that he clearly acted alone and not with anyone else who may have been living in the property at that time. Hmm. Like the landlord. Yeah, like the landlord, so... Whew. I mean, it's very specific that it was nobody but William. Mm. What a great, great way of sort of confirming that. Thank you, Fanny. And it's a very elaborate way of getting out of your debts. Mm. Well, Well, sorry. Is it an elaborate way of getting out of your debts? Yes. Yeah. Well, it was confirmed that it was a very elaborate way of getting out of the debts because one of the audience then asked Fanny, rather tactlessly, considering that William was in the room, if William Kent would hang for the offence, 
and Fanny confirmed that he would with a single knock. So imagine that, you're sat in a room and the guy is across the way and you're like, will he hang? Tell me, ghost, will he hang? Like, bloody hell. Yes, yes he will. Yeah, at least wait until he's gone. By the way, Fanny, is he is he done for? Ooh, juicy. <laughs> got a bit of information no one else has got yet. William naturally continued to deny any foul play, but the public took an interest in the macabre story. And Richard Parsons, he saw a chance to make a bit of money and he began conducting regular seances for the paying public. The newspapers picked up on the story, not just the rags, all the newspapers across London, and they gave the ghost a nickname. Scratching Fanny. (laughs) It is reported that through mid to late January, the crowds on Cock Lane wanting to meet Scratching Fanny grew to be so big that it was impossible for the other people living there to get in and out of their houses. Uh, uh, Yeah, well, that's... I mean, he's going to make so much money from doing these seances. He could probably pay back that chap with tenfold. But he's yeah. not, not going to have to, because as we know, William is going to hang. It's mm. just, a, just a according, matter of when. According to Scratching Fanny. Descri- on Cock Lane. What the... Scratching what? Fanny of Cock Lane, yes. Yeah. A description of a visit to meet with Fanny was given by Horace Walpole, Earl of Oxford, and at the time, a sitting member of Parliament who decided to go down for a lucky-loo. So it's 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 oh, it sort of gone through the ranks, yeah. yeah. Nobles all the way through. Everyone wanted to go and have a little look. So this is what he said: he said <clears throat> When we opened the chamber, in which were fifty people with no light but one tallow candle, we tumbled over the bed of the child to whom the ghost comes, and whom they are murdering by inches in such insufferable heat and stench. At the top of the room are ropes to dry clothes. I asked if we were to have rope dancing between acts. We heard nothing. They told us, as they would at a puppet show, that it would not come that night till seven in the morning. That is, when there are only prentices and old women. We stayed, however, till half an hour after one. The Methodists have promised them contributions. Provisions are sent in, like forage, and all the taverns and alehouses in the neighbourhood make fortunes. So, if this whole time that people are... Uh, are coming on regular basis mm. to uh, to view this. Is the child having to lie there naked the whole time? Well, she's having to lie in the bed. Um, and they're f- basically, they're putting her in a bed and they're letting up to 50 people at a time or more cram into this room. Oh, that poor kid. Uh, yeah, all night long to try and... <laughs> I just want to sleep, fine. Dad. Just let me sleep. Yeah, so she's she's not having a good time of it. But no. Richard is like, the you know, the only way to prove that this ghost is real is to get public opinion on side. So the more people who come through and are convinced, the better. You know, it's just a publicity tour, really. It's, come on, come on. You believe in Fanny. Mm. I believe in Fanny. Let's, let's all make it so that no one can deny the existence of this ghost. Though Walpole was disappointed, many visitors were utterly convinced that the ghost was real. And by extension, that William Kemp was a filthy murderer. Because if you believe Fanny's real, you've got to believe that what she's saying is is real. This has got out of hand. Well, with the hysteria reaching fever pitch, it was decided by the Mayor of London that the authorities needed to establish once and for all if scratching Fanny was real or if she was made up. Oh, Jesus. And they would do this 
by setting up a committee. <laughs> made up of? Well, whom? made up of Dr. George Macaulay, a sensible man of science. Which is good, you've got a doctor there. Yeah, yeah. The matron of the local laying-in hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a woman, apparently her name was not important because it wasn't recorded anywhere. But she was there to assist um, okay. oh, yes. Dr. George can... Macaulay and to look after the welfare of the child, which is quite nice. That they thought, well... About time yeah. as well. Bishop John Douglas, who mm. would act on behalf of God in the matter. Yeah. Captain Wilkinson, who had attended previous seances with a gun in order to shoot whoever or whatever was making the noises. So a man very determined to seek the truth. Mm-hmm. Quite scary mm. as well. Yeah. Uh, John Moore, because he'd known the ghost for a long time at this point. So they got John Moore back in. Mm. The Earl of Dartmouth, a member of the government of the day. So, yeah. you know, you've got, to, you've got to have Parliament isn't as important as sorting this out. So he's got a couple of days leave from making the laws of the country yeah. to come and sort out the ghost. And to chair this motley crew, the man who would be responsible for making sure it all ran seamlessly. Dr. Samuel Johnson, polymath and creator of the first dictionary. Ah, Okay. Dr. Johnson organised a seance to take place at a neutral venue on February 1st. He had Elizabeth Parsons placed in a bed and attended at all times by the matron and selected helpers to ensure that no one could interact with the girl other than members of the committee. Wise. Scratching Fanny was repeatedly asked to appear, but nothing was heard for over an hour. Now, the 1st of February had been chosen because, during a previous seance, Fanny had apparently been in a bragging mood and has said that she would prove that she was real by knocking on her own coffin in the vaults of the Church of St John in Clerkenwell that very night at 1am. Okay, that's a bold mm, statement. But it's something that's very easy to check, isn't it? Yeah. So the whole committee trooped over to the church and entered the vaults at 1am. So that's, again, a doctor, a member of the House of Lords, a bishop, and Dr Samuel Johnson trooping into a graveyard in the dead of night... Like they've not got anything else to do. (laughs) Yeah. And this is early February. It is icicles. Mm. You know, this is still during the mini ice age. So you can imagine just the sound of all the frost just cracking under their feet (laughs) as they walk through this graveyard. You know, the breath just hanging in the air of the lamp, you know, the oil lamps. Christ. All of this to test to see if a ghost is real. As I said earlier, it's got very out of hand. (laughs) Predictably, Scratching Fanny did not live up to her claims, and no sounds were heard in the vaults. Mm, I wonder why. However, while they were away, Richard Parsons had briefly visited with his daughter. And would you believe that since that short visit, some scratching and knocking had been heard? (laughs) Yeah, convenient. The committee raced back to the house where, as Dr Samuel Johnson described it, When the gentleman entered, the girl declared that she felt the spirit like a mouse upon her back. We required her to hold her hands out of bed, and from that time, though the spirit was very solemnly requested to manifest its existence by appearance, by impression, or by the hand or body of any present, by scratches, knocks, or any other agency, no evidence of any preternatural power was exhibited. So I think Dr Johnson's got the measure of it. It's like... 
Okay. Yeah, there's been lots of scratches. Can we see your hands, please, Elizabeth? Can you just yeah. put your hands out where we can see them? Oh, look at that. It stopped. Hmm. Wonder what that means. <laughs> Eventually, at 3am, they allowed Elizabeth Parsons to go home. The entire committee were now convinced the ghost was a fraud. Hmm. Of course. Now, Richard, I think he sensed the mood of the committee uh, as yeah. he took his daughter out of the bed and back home. And he tried to repair the reputation of scratching Fanny by organising more seances. Yeah. That proved that his daughter was not responsible for the noises that were being heard. This poor child has got roped into this shenanigan. Well, yes. It does appear as though um, Elizabeth is going along with something. We know not what at this stage. Okay. <laughs> yes, uh... These attempts uh, at improving the publicity for Scratching Fanny, they tended to backfire. On one occasion, when she was suspended in a hammock, this is Elizabeth, they put her in a hammock and suspended her a good few foot off the floor so that you could see around her, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, It was noted that the noises stopped as soon as she was again asked to put her hands and feet outside of the hammock. And on another occasion, one of the observers noticed that Elizabeth was trying to sneak a small block of wood into the bed with her. Fraud. Mm. Eventually, even John Moore, the first person who had agreed that the ghost was real, the first true believer in scratching Fanny, he became convinced it was a hoax. Mm. Yeah. He even agreed to write a letter to William Kent confirming that this was the case. Mm. I bet like, William's probably mortified by this point, isn't he? Like Everyone's involved. He'd not been arrested or anything. No, not, not been arrested. He took the letter that John had written to him uh, and ensured that it was printed in the newspapers. He then ensured that it was used as part of the case that was brought against John Moore and the Parsons, including Richard's wife, for some reason. For slander. Uh, no, for conspiracy to take away life. It's quite a serious charge. Yeah. So the argument that William put forward was basically they created this lie that there was this ghost in order not to slander me but to try and to have kill me, me so this is attempted murder yeah basically. it's attempted murder it's, it's, it was his argument and the yeah. judge took it up as as that and said yep yeah, that seems legitimate mm. the ghost had said and people had witnessed it that you were to die by hanging so that must have been the end goal of richard parsons because otherwise why would you say yes to that if you're in control of these sounds yeah you know, it's clearly stating your intent. The trial took place on July 10th, 1762, in a courtroom packed with spectators. However, weirdly, despite how close it was, it didn't take place in the central criminal courts. It didn't take place in the Old Bailey. They, they took the trial somewhere else. Maybe it was just too close to Cock Lane. They were worried that scratching Fanny, if she did exist, would start to um, interfere in proceedings. They do sometimes do that, though, don't they? If a case is like... Um like, really big, like, pub, like been publicised massively. Mm. They take it away to somewhere that it's not as... You, you're not going to have people... Yeah, it's not going to cause so much of a stir. The emotions yeah. are going to run lower, and you can you can get a better... Um, a jury pool yeah. who aren't going to have been tainted by personal experience, yeah. Yeah. And I guess that must have been hard to find, because if they were taking 50 people in a time and they were doing multiple seances through the evenings... <laughs> I, Everyone in London. Yeah, well... You know, I think everyone who'd been visiting Smithfield Market over the past month had gone for a little 
Yeah, a little jaunt. It's only around the corner. Yeah, just go down there. Everybody was waiting for the, the case to be called at the Old Bailey. It was like, well, we are here. May as well just pop her head in and see what's going on. Anyway, whether whether they moved it to try and find a, an untainted jury pool, we do know that the courtroom was packed with spectators. So the other thing they might have done is to try and get more spectators in. You know, I mean, the the courtrooms at the Old Bailey aren't the biggest. No. They could have filled the O2 with this one. <laughs> Set it up. The Archbishop of Canterbury himself sent a letter in support of John Moore and his character to try and, you know, get him out of this consp- conspiracy charge. Okay. The judge took this letter and placed it in his pocket without opening it, saying that it would be impossible that it could actually relate to the case in question. Well, uh, did the Archbishop of Canterbury know this chap? Well, I think it was more, you know, this this guy was um, a, a member of the Anglican Church and worked in, in, uh, in the church, so the Archbishop tried to write a letter to the judge saying, look, this man... He's a decent Christian yes, man. He's a decent Christian man, and he shouldn't be charged with conspiracy to murder because he he was an unwitting stooge. He wasn't involved. And mm. the judge... And he would never do that. In a very ballsy move, considering he just received a letter from the Archbishop of Canterbury, just mm. popped it in his pocket and went, nope, that can have nothing to do with this. Mm. I don't mm. see the point of even reading what the Archbishop of Canterbury has to say because on this, he has no authority and he has no knowledge. Although, in a way, I think that's good, though, because church and state should be very separate. Well, this is this is that in action, you know. Mm. The, the se- well, it's the um, the church, the state, and the penal system, isn't it? You're supposed to have the mm. three things um, kind of separate. And he was definitely going, no, Archbishop, you have no power here. <laughs> you are wrong, sir. <laughs> We're here to discuss whether a ghost exists or not. I have <laughs> no idea how you could weigh in on these kinds of matters. It's probably one of the few court cases where the Archbishop of Canterbury would be, a, you know, an expert witness. Yeah, true, true. Although, I don't know, I don't know much about it, but some um, sects of religion don't believe in ghosts, which is weird. Hmm. I, I believe it was mainly the Methodists. They were the ones who were really into the, the idea of the other the other realms and stuff. So I think the when Methodism side. sort of took off, hmm. ghosts and, and all that kind of took off. And then, of course, the Catholics love a good exorcism, so you've got that as well. Yeah. But, yeah, with the Archbishop, he's been blackballed from the trial. The other defence witnesses, they were less than useless because they were supposed to be character witnesses, basically, for the Parsons, and they did little more than just confirm that Richard Parsons was an alcoholic who was in constant need of money and had benefited greatly from the arrival of Scratching Fanny in his house. Mm. So they'd say things, oh, yeah. yeah, he's been... He's he's a really nice man. I mean, you know, especially now that he's got all that money from all those seances. I mean, he's he's in a much better mood. Yeah. I'd, I'd say he's drinking less, wouldn't you? Because there was there was a moment, wasn't there, when <laughs> oof, we were worried about his health, and yeah. he's stumbling in, and how often he fell into number nineteen accidentally, mm-hmm. interrupting all the business going on there. Oof. Yeah. So they weren't they weren't useful as witnesses. The prosecution, meanwhile first proved that Fanny had died of smallpox by calling the doctor and apothecary who had attended her on her deathbed. Yeah. And then they went on to tell the jury all about the defaulted debt that Richard had owed to William. Yes. And the timelines of scratching Fanny's arrival, lining up perfectly with Richard being ordered to repay all of the money immediately. Yeah. It didn't feel like they had to do much more than that, really. 
Oh, and they also, you know, pointed out all those times when Elizabeth Parsons was found to be holding little bits of wood that could be used to knock on and scratch, uh, and all the times that Scratching Fanny had mysteriously disappeared when Elizabeth's hands could be seen, yeah. and then reappeared when they let her put her hands back under the bed clothes. So, yeah. It all sounds a bit dodgy. It actually reminds me a little bit of the um, the Battersea poltergeist when there was a there was a girl involved in that as well, and there was scratching, I believe. Uh, sounds very similar. Well, I think the problem for Richard was he'd he'd assumed that because the public were really behind the story, that everyone believed it. Yeah, and that it was you know it it was now considered a fact, but it was just. People like distraction, they like entertainment, and it was a good story. And this entire thing, you know, from the start of the scratching to um, the committee kind of finding that there was nothing there and it yeah. all unravelling, it was over the course of a month. It was mid-January to mid-February. Mm. And then well, it kept them entertained in the winter. Yeah, it was, it was a bit of entertainment for the people of London. It was, you know, a novelty that wore off. And his his problem was that as soon as the novelty wore off, everyone went, well, yeah, of course it's fake. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course Elizabeth's the one making those noises. I mean, come on, you, you're not faking it that well, to be honest. We all just bought into it because it was a good laugh. And it was, and it was something to do story, yeah. in the cold, cold nights. It took the jury only 15 minutes to return a guilty verdict. On all counts. John Moore was ordered to pay Kent £500 in compensation uh, and was then allowed to leave the court. Okay. So he basically bought a pardon and he wasn't going to actually be sentenced to anything. So okay. If you pay him £500, because it was kind of an informal arrangement, it was like, the judge was like, well, if you, if you pay him £500 for the defamation, we'll let you go. How does that sound? You all right yeah. with that, William? And William's like, yeah, no worries. I can always do with another 500 quid. And John Moore was like, well, I don't know what the sentencing options are for conspiracy to, you know, take away life. So, yeah, I'll, I'll take that. Mm, yeah, fair. Richard Parsons, though, the mastermind, the okay. alcoholic idea that came to him and he acted on without any further thinking. He wasn't so lucky. Okay. He was sentenced to two years hard labour. Oh. But only after he'd stood in the pillory on three separate days. Yeah. His wife was sentenced to a year in prison, as was his daughter, Elizabeth. So the lot of them were going the clink. I do feel sorry for the kid, though. Mm, I think the argument was you you knew it was a fraud because you were the one doing it, and you knew <sighs> that yeah. the plan was to have this guy, you know, hopefully yeah. executed. So you have to take some responsibility in that. But yeah, yeah, a year in prison. I don't know why the wife got a year in prison. I mean, yeah, she must have had more to do with it than... Um... Than it was saying, but it, she yeah. wasn't mentioned in any of the sort of like... You know, it wasn't like, and Elizabeth's mother was there. You know, yeah. Making sure that if she wasn't well rested, she was at least well fed. Yeah. You know, and sort of sorting out the accounts in the background while Richard Parsons was out in the street. Roll up, roll up. Come and see Scratching Fanny. Yeah. She'll bang your brains out. Ours is the only true knocking shop in all of Cock Lane. <laughs> Come and meet the ghostess with the mostess. You know, he could have had a great job as a barker out the front while wife was taking care of business. Yeah. Now, the shame of it all. The embarrassment. 
the complete shredding of his reputation appeared to break Richard Parsons' brain. So much so that the first attempt to put him in the pillory had to be abandoned because he was reported to appear to be out of his goddamn mind. Yeah. So he was just so overwhelmed by everything that they couldn't even get him to stand to go in the pillory. He was just a blubbering wreck on the floor. He turned to human jelly. Mm-hmm. And he went, this I've... is so pathetic that we're going to give you a day, mate. We're going to... Yeah. We'll come back another day to do this because it's not it's not going to be a punishment so much as it's it's you know just us beating a guy who's at his lowest. We're not going to do this to you. You're still yeah. going to have to go in the pillory. Just try and compose yourself, Richard. And in fact, when they finally did get him in the pillories on those three separate days, he looked so pathetic that the crowd, instead of pelting him with rotten food or poo. Or, as sometimes oh, happened, dropping his pants and, you know, violating him. What? That used to happen in the pillories. What is wrong with people? Because people would stand for a day and a night, and sometimes there would be acts of buggery performed upon them. Oh, Jesus. Because think about it, they can't turn around to see who it is, and they're not exactly in a position to stop it. No, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and the point of the pillory is humiliation. So I'm guessing yeah, that the yeah, local yeah. sort of bobbies would turn a blind eye to it because it's like, well, this is supposed to be what's happening to him. He's supposed to be utterly humiliated by this yeah. made a public spectacle. <sighs> what, by bloody raping people? Mm, but they, they didn't rape Richard Parsons. They didn't throw things at him. They felt so sorry for him that they had a little whip round in the hat to collect some money. Okay. So that there'd be something for his wife and daughter when they got out of prison, because obviously, naturally, they lost the house on Cock Lane immediately. Yeah, and which with, you would, I guess. Yeah, two years of no income. You know, Elizabeth and Elizabeth's mum were going to come out to complete destitution, so they're like, well, you know, it's all jolly japes, and for the fact that we had a, a distraction for the darkest month of the year, yeah. uh, we'll have a whip round, so that when, when they do come out of prison, they've at least got money to start again. Yeah. Which, quite... I mean, that's quite nice. spirited considering... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially where they kept him entertained for the first couple of months of the year, didn't they? So why not? Yeah, it's worth a little bit of money. Hmm. William Kent, in contrast, you know, the the person who'd been accused of murder, Mm, he eventually made over £1,000 out of the entire affair in damages, and he returned to stockbrokering with his new wife, presumably never visiting Cock Lane or thinking about Cock Lane ever again. And he's lost a history as a, you know, middling businessman who, after what was a weird couple of years, because from start to finish, this entire affair was about five years. Yeah. You know, he he just went on and had a relatively normal life, as far as we know. Sort of, how bizarre. So, actually, the intended purpose of him sort of being potentially sent to the gallows because a ghost was saying that he did this, that and the other, actually backfired on the person that was found guilty of doing it and actually made the other dude a lot of money. So actually he probably should have just paid him that free guineas, shouldn't he? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, in in terms of he was, he apparently murdered Fanny to get a 200 quid inheritance by, by bandying that lie. He made five times the amount that the inheritance was out of scratching Fanny. So it was a net win for William, definitely. Monetarily, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, his mental health wasn't great during the height of Fanny fever. No, because it could have gone, it could have gone the other way. Oh, easily. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a jury. 
So yeah. if that jury had decided to buy the, the ghost thing, they could easily have said, yes, we find the ghost to be, you know, perfectly legitimate. We think that this case needs to be thrown out. And that sets a precedent to say, well, if we're saying in a court of law that Scratching Fanny is a genuine ghost who is manifesting via knocks and scratches, now we have to look at what she's saying and look for evidence of that. I mean, yeah. I think the apocryphy and the doctor kind of saved his neck, regardless. <laughs> this yeah, woman yeah, yeah. died of smallpox. We yeah, can't be any more clear about this. She's <laughs> covered in smallpox scars. Look at this body. As was Elizabeth I. Mm, which is why she wore lead, which went mm. well. Yeah. Now, the house where Parsons lived, as I've said, it's considered that it was most likely 20 Cock Lane. Mm-hmm. And if you're thinking of visiting next time you're down there... Yeah. I've got some bad news. It's not there anymore. Yeah. The original 17th century building was torn down in 1979. Hmm. I mean, it's annoyingly close. <sighs> so you know, close. It got through sort of like Victorian industrialization. You know, it got through the bloody wars. Oh my God, that's less than 10 years before we were born. Yeah, when they finally tore it down. Eight years. And they've just built... I mean, now... Cock Lane, it looks like a sort of service alley to the houses on either side. It, it doesn't look like much anymore. There's definitely... I mean, I don't know that you could have prostitution on Cock Lane now. There doesn't seem like anywhere you could go to be discreet. What a shame. They've moved it all to Soho, haven't they? Well, you know, it, it's going to move around, isn't it? It's, <laughs> the... It will always be there in some form in London. It's just words in vogue it, for it. At any it will given go time. where the people go. Yeah, well, it'll go where the prostitutes go, otherwise you've not really got a business. Exactly. But yes, that was the story of Scratching Fanny of Cock Lane. It's and so it, interesting. And the time, you know, a, a man tried to murder via ghost, which has got to be a novelty. I feel like you have met the brief, so I am the brief, of liking ghosts, history, and cock. <laughs> and I feel like you've met the brief completely. With so. a cameo from Dr. Samuel Johnson as well, because why not? I mean... Yeah, it's absolutely. Got to get a little bit, sprinkle a little bit of celebrity in there. Yeah. It's like we say, you know, they didn't have TV back then, so they had to find entertainment where they could. And these kinds of stories were that entertainment. It was amazing. It, it was gave you something to talk about. It's like when we talked about the Red Barn and how quickly that real-life tragedy became entertainment for the masses and plays were being put on before they'd had the trial yeah. <laughs> and stuff it's, like that. It's that mass hysteria, isn't it? That mob rule yeah. that um, the people get swept up in things. I mean, maybe today it's more, did you see that on telly? Or uh, a few years ago, like the big... Um, like talent show competitions were a massive thing and everyone was talking about it and it's all... Uh, it is that mass But it's the same sort of level movement. of sort of disposable because I think that's where Richard Parsons went wrong. He was like, well, if people are... Oh, look how interested people are. They're going to believe me. It's like... It's the same as, like, say, those talent shows. Once they're done and you've had the final... Yeah. People quickly move on to the next thing. And yeah, for him, of course they do. It, everyone abandoned him and the interest in, in the ghost relatively quickly... And that just left him as the perpetrator of an obvious fraud. So he'd, yeah, yeah, yeah. he'd really yeah. misjudged how... I, I, I don't know if 
sort of like at first it was just a way of trying to get back at William and then it evolved into something that he no longer had control over and he just had to keep going. It's just a lie that got out of yeah. hand, isn't it? And okay. then you you go too far down the road that you can't turn back without looking like an absolute idiot. So you just have to keep, keep going. digging and hope at some point something's going to happen that gives you an out. And it did eventually. I yeah. mean, you know, he had two years hard labour. He'd been in the pillory, but then it was like, well, that's done. I don't know what happened to him after that. I mean, I, I'd assume his wife and child never spoke to him again. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of child abuse there as well, isn't there? Oh, lots. Because that's, yeah, you say, why did she go along with it? It's uh, an alcoholic dad. Who's yeah, exactly. You do this or this will happen. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric. Here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.